You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your Bible, will you grab that and go with me to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Next week, uh, as you probably know, is Mother's Day. We're going to take a, a one-week break in our series uh, next week for Mother's Day. It just didn't quite seem right to do uh, this series on Mother's Day. You know, Happy Mother's Day, everybody. Let's talk about greed. That just didn't, didn't quite feel right. So we're going to take a one-week break next week, just so you know that that's coming. But we're going to continue with the series today. Matthew chapter 22. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You'll find some Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. You can take one now or on your way out of worship this morning, and that's our gift to you. If you are willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? I want to read for us to get us started. Matthew chapter 22 verses 34 to 40. Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. Listen carefully to God's word. But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. In this current series, we are looking at how our devices cultivate the so-called seven deadly sins, better called the seven capital vices. The iPhone was introduced in January of 2007, as I shared with you a few weeks ago. At an Apple event in January of 2010, Steve Jobs unveiled the iPad, which I'm reading from right now. For 90 minutes... Jobs explained why this new device would surpass the laptop. He believed everyone should own an iPad. Everyone except his children. Jobs refused to let his kids use the device. In late 2010, he told a New York Times journalist that his children had never used the iPad. We limit how much technology our kids use in the home, he said. This same New York Times journalist, Nick Bilton was his name, discovered that several other tech giants established similar boundaries. Chris Anderson, former editor of Wired, enforced strict screen time limits on every device in his home. His five children, for example, were not allowed to use screens in their bedrooms. Leslie Gold, the founder of an analytics company, had a strict no screens during the week rule for her children. Walter Isaacson, who wrote a best-selling biography of Steve Jobs, says that while eating dinner with the Jobs family, he never, never saw anyone pull out an Apple product. The kids did not seem to be addicted at all to their devices, he writes. It would seem that the producers of tech products follow the cardinal rule of drug dealing. Don't get high on your own supply. Some of the world's greatest technocrats 
are also some of the greatest technophobes. Why? Because they know the addictive power of their creations. Instagram is bottomless. Facebook has an endless feed. Netflix automatically moves on to the next episode. The CEO of Netflix declared that his company's primary competition is not Amazon, not YouTube, but sleep. Sleep. For their company to grow, people must sleep less and binge watch more. Netflix will thrive financially only when it finds ways to entice its viewers to sacrifice something our bodies need to thrive physically. Our loss is their gain. So how do they get us to sacrifice sleep? How do they get us hooked? Well, everything we do online is tracked. I'm sure you've noticed this. Everything we do online is tracked. Over time, the history of every like, pin, email, swipe, hashtag creates your epic digital biography. This biography feeds algorithms, recommendation engines, designed to deliver optimally interesting content to maximize our time on platform, making sure that we stay hooked. See, streaming services like Netflix and Amazon and YouTube, they can accurately predict what you are most likely to watch next because they know everything else you've ever watched. And they know what people just like you watched next. Forget about caring for your own body. Forget about caring for other people tonight. Forget about caring about your responsibilities tomorrow. Just keep watching and watching and watching into oblivion. Today we're going to talk about the vice that probably is the least thought about of all of them. And when we do think about it, we probably tend to think of it as the lightweight of the group. Today we're going to talk about sloth. Now there are many reasons we tend to think of this as the lightweight of the group. For example, think about the way sloth is pictured in some of our favorite films. There's the goofy character named Sloth in The Goonies, for those who grew up in that era. More recently, there's the animal Sloth named Flash in Zootopia. All the parents and kids will know that scene, right? Hilarious scene. I would have shown it this morning, but Flash moves so slowly, it would have eaten up like 25% of my sermon time. So you're just going to have to imagine it. Watch it later. Sloth seems like the lightweight, right? I mean, we can understand how envy can cause damage. We saw last week how envy led to the first murder in the Bible. It's equally easy to imagine how avarice or wrath could ruin someone's life. But sloth, it just seems less sinister, less serious. How much trouble could we possibly get ourselves in by lying in bed? binge-watching our favorite show on Netflix until the algorithms find our next favorite. Let's consider God's Word. Let's consider what God's Word teaches us about this vice, its power, its dangers. Then we'll continue the subject I've already introduced, how our devices cultivate this particular vice 
And finally, in closing, we'll look at some practices, some spiritual practices to counter sloth's power in our own lives. First, an anatomy of the vice itself. What does God's Word teach us about this vice, its power, its dangers? We'll begin in the Old Testament in the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, we have certain recurring characters, characters that come up again and again throughout the chapters. One of them is the forbidden woman. Another one is the sluggard. The sluggard. Not a term we use often these days, but an important character in the book of Proverbs. The writer of Proverbs wants us to learn from the sluggard. The sluggard is a character of both comedy and tragedy. On the one hand, the writer wants us to laugh at the absurdity of this character. But on the other hand, we must learn from the sluggard's mistakes, thereby avoiding them in our own lives. Here are just a few of the sluggard's blunders. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. Proverbs 22, verse 13. My personal favorite, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. Proverbs 26, verses 14 and 15. The sluggard is someone who doesn't think about tomorrow. The sluggard is someone who makes excuses so he won't have to deal with the responsibilities of today. The sluggard is someone who wastes the day by lying in bed. His habitual inactivity makes something so simple as eating a bowl of Cheerios feel like work. Now, the reason that the sluggard is mentioned again and again and again in the book of Proverbs is because in the Bible, laziness, slothfulness is not a minor character flaw. It's a serious spiritual issue. It's not a minor character flaw. It's a serious spiritual issue. Now, how is it a spiritual issue? Well, according to Christian theology, God is the creator of all things. God is the giver of all good gifts, including your capacities and opportunities. The people in your life and your life's ultimate purpose. God is the giver of all of those things. From a Christian perspective then, sloth, laziness, is disregarding God's good gifts. Disregarding those capacities, those opportunities He's given you. Wasting the gifts of God. It's a coldness toward our kingdom calling. Much more serious than we tend to think it is. This past week was May the 4th. May the 4th be with you, Star Wars Day. So I'll give you a Star Wars illustration this morning just to show you that I'm relevant. Okay? Picture that scene in The Last Jedi. I know it's the most controversial film in the collection for those of you who are like real Star Wars fans. I know, but just hang with me. Picture the scene at the beginning of the movie, toward the beginning, when Rey finds Luke Skywalker and she hands him the lightsaber. You remember the scene? There they are on the cliff. She hands him the lightsaber and that gesture speaks volumes. It's her saying, Luke, you have a gift. You have a place. You have a purpose. And Luke, he takes the lightsaber. 
he holds it in his hand for about a second, and then he tosses it over his shoulder, and down the cliff it goes. That is sloth. That's sloth. God says to you, you have a gift. You have a place. You have a purpose. And what do we do? We toss it over our shoulder, and down the cliff it goes. That's sloth. Now, if we turn from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we find an encounter between Jesus and a lawyer that helps us better understand just how serious this is, this thing called slothfulness. Look again at the passage I read earlier, Matthew 22. One of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is quoting here a passage called the Shema in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the Old Testament. It's called the Shema because that's the first word in the Hebrew summons. Shema, O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is but one true God. And there is but one fitting response to this God, which Jesus cites here. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The nouns are piled up here to make the point that this is total allegiance. This is loving God with our whole selves, everything we've got. And according to Jesus, there's a second commandment so closely connected to the first that we can't talk about that first commandment without also talking about the second one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you can't be a follower of Jesus. You can't claim to know and love God if you're not actively loving the people around you. Now when we understand that, then we begin to see Why slothfulness is indeed a serious spiritual matter. In summary, we could put it like this. Sloth cannot be considered the lightweight of the capital vices because it violates the heaviest or the greatest commandments. Rightly understood, sloth is spiritual apathy. A refusal to use the resources God has given us Laziness with respect to the love to which he's called us. Laziness with respect to the love, that kingdom calling that he's given us. So if that's sloth, now we need to ask the question, how is it that our devices are cultivating this vice? How are they inciting this vice? Let's transition to that. We live in a vast carnival of distractions. You've no doubt noticed this. A vast carnival of distractions that want to carry our attention away from this kingdom calling. Love God and love others. I wonder, have you ever looked closely at how many minutes or hours you spend on your devices each day? Have you ever wondered what it might add up to over your lifetime? An app developer named Kevin Hollish decided that he wasn't devoting enough time to his family. His devices 
were the culprit. So he did what any app developer would do. He designed an app. An app to track how much time he was spending on his phone each day. He called the app Moment. Hollis discovered that he was spending over an hour a day glued to his glowing rectangle. Eventually, he shared the app with his friends, asking them to guess what their daily usage was. And almost always, they guessed 50% too low. Hollis later collected the usage data of 8,000 moment users. He found that most people spend between one and four hours on their phones each day and some far longer. They were spending an average of a quarter of their waking lives on their phones, more time than any other daily activity except sleeping. Each month, almost 100 hours was lost to checking email, texting, playing games, surfing the web. Over the average lifetime, that amounts to a staggering 11 years. Brett McCracken, author of The Wisdom Pyramid, admits, when I find myself meandering on my phone, scrolling through Instagram, clicking random links, checking sports scores, whatever, I often feel removed from my body, lost in a digital rabbit hole. Well, imagine if all that time in the digital rabbit hole added up to 11 years of your life. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? A wake-up call, maybe, for some of us? How is all of this time online, all of this time on our devices, how is it affecting our relationships? How is it making us lazy at love? I want us to consider five ways. Five ways. First, we use our devices to disappear from people. We use our devices to disappear from people. Like that character Drax in Infinity War who thinks he has mastered the art of standing so still that he's become invisible to the eye. We think that by grabbing that device and burying our face in it, we become invisible to the passerby. Whoever it is we don't want to talk to. The homeless person looking for a handout. That eccentric church member who's sure to bring up an awkward conversation. That person with whom you're experiencing conflict. Whoever it is you want to avoid, now you have a way to do so. Just grab your device, bury your face in it, look like you're doing something very important, and they won't talk to you. We use our devices as cloaking devices, helping us avoid the conversations we don't want to have. Oh, it's so much easier to turn to technology than it is to have a conversation. Heck, it's easier to invent a new technology than to have a conversation. We use our devices to disappear from people. Second, we settle for digital followers rather than sacrificial friendships. Gen Zers, most of whom have never known a world without an iPhone, are not happier. Ever-present screen time, social media, text messaging, all of this 
has led to a rising rate of depression, anxiety, loneliness. Loneliness. So many people are looking for deep friendships on social media. But hear me, that's like looking for an expensive, rare wine at a gas station. It's like looking for a perfectly cooked porterhouse in your popcorn bucket. You're looking in the wrong place. You're just looking in the wrong place. You won't find deep community on social media. You'll only find shallow connection. You might have 10,000 followers and not one true friend. You might have 10,000 followers and not be a true friend. Look, I get the appeal of it. I get the appeal. It's so much easier to have shallow connection because shallow connection doesn't demand much of us. It doesn't ask much of us. If all I have is shallow connection, I never have to take the time to close my eyes, focus my heart on God, and say that prayer for another person. I can just text them a prayer emoji. It's way easier. Way easier. If all I have is shallow connection, I never have to help my friend move into his new house. I can just wait until he's all moved in and like the picture of his new house. Way easier. But all of us are wired in such a way that we crave, we need deep friendships. Something that social media is not going to provide. Don't settle for digital followers in the place of sacrificial, real friendships. Third, we are less present with real people. We're less present with real people. Countless researchers have demonstrated how our technology overload is changing our brains, how it's rewiring the human brain. When we have a device in hand, we want to multitask. We want to multitask, but in that we pursue an illusion. We're not really multitasking. Our brains are just bouncing quickly from one subject to the next, and the more subjects we pile on, the more our performance is downgraded. And what happens eventually, because we're spending so much time trying to multitask, what happens eventually is our brains are no longer able to focus on one subject or one person, even when we're trying desperately hard to do so. This is why you sometimes find it so difficult to listen to your daughter tell you about her day. It's why your mind wanders when your spouse tries to tell you about his or her day. The narrative is painfully slow. Why? Because you've conditioned your brain to bounce from this subject to that to that, wherever the action is. See, this is the paradox of our day. We keep our phones on us all the time because someone might need us. Someone somewhere might need me, so I've got to keep that phone on me. But then when I'm present in person with them, I can't be present mentally with them. This is the paradox. When we're apart, hypervigilance. Gotta have the phone on. When we're together, inattention. Inattention. We're less present with real people. Fourth, we're less caring. This one is very important. 
Sherry Turkle, who's a professor at MIT, probably has done more work on this subject than anyone else. Turkle highlights that most people today, and I think you'll see this is true of you as well, most people today would rather send an email or a text message than commit to a phone call or a face-to-face -face conversation. This new mediated life has gotten us into trouble, she says. Face-to-face -face conversation is the most human and most humanizing thing we do. Fully present to one another, we learn to listen. It's where we develop the capacity for empathy. The capacity for empathy. Turkle draws on the work of a psychiatrist named Daniel Siegel, arguing that the development of empathy requires face-to-face -face conversation. Where there is no eye contact, there is no empathy. Repeated tens of thousands of times in the child's life, these small moments of mutual rapport serve to transmit the best part of our humanity, our capacity for love, from one generation to the next. Look, I know so many teachers who all have a consistent remark about their classrooms. There's a rising number of children with serious behavioral problems. And at the top of the list would be disrespect and cruelty of words. If we send our children to their devices and we never put them in these positions where they're going to develop empathy, we never teach them how to have face-to-face, eye-to-eye conversations, is it a surprise that they don't see how their words affect others? It's not shocking that they've become cruel. We pay a price when we live our lives online. We become less caring. Fifth and finally, we are less involved in our immediate communities. We're less involved in our immediate communities. The internet brings the world to us in ways that our great-grandparents never could have imagined. Never could have imagined. There's a positive side of that, of course. But the negative is that we have been stripped of our locality. We have less local affection than generations before us. A few weeks ago, I cited an article by Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry has also written a great amount of fiction. And one of the things I love about his fiction is how deeply planted his characters are in their community. Their community which in his stories are called Port William. Membership in Barry's works refers both to people and a place. You're a member of a place, not just a group of people. In his book, Hannah Coulter, for example, the title character, Hannah, says this, members of Port William aren't trying to get somewhere. They're not trying to get someplace. They think they are someplace. Most people now are looking for a better place which means that a lot of them will end up in a worse one. There is no better place than this. Not in this world. And it is by the place we've got and our love for it and our keeping of it that this world is joined to heaven. See, one of the things the internet has done to us is it so quickly shifts our attention to drama that's far, far away. 
that in reality we can't do anything about. That we're less connected to where we live. We're less involved in our neighborhoods, in our communities. Again, I get the appeal. I can watch a YouTuber in London and then hop over to social media and see what's new on the South Island of New Zealand and then pop over here to a workout program by a guy in Canada and then camp out on the headlines in the U.S. all in a matter of a few seconds. You can go anywhere in the world in just a few seconds online. And one of the results is that we're not truly involved in our communities. We're so caught up in the headlines and the drama that we can't do anything about way out there somewhere in our social media spaces. And we're not doing anything about the tangible realities that are right in front of us. Everybody wants to change the world and nobody's willing to do the dishes. Everybody wants to do something about global poverty and nobody sees the beggar at their gate. How can we? Our face is still buried in our feet. Where the world's chaos comes crashing at us like a meteor shattering our attention, sending it in a thousand different directions. We're less involved in our immediate communities. Our devices are indeed making us lazy at love. So what can we do about it? Very quickly, what can we do about it? Let me mention three practices. First, commit to a local church and remain committed. Commit to a local church and remain committed. Empathy will tempt us toward, excuse me, uh, slothfulness will tempt us toward escapism. In other words, when things get hard, you want to run away. You want to take the easy way out. Slothfulness will tempt you to join a local church, commit to a local community until, until, A leader says something you don't like. A decision is made you don't agree with. You have a conflict with someone in that community. In those moments, slothfulness, laziness at love, it will whisper in your ear, just withdraw. Just escape. Do things on your own. You don't need that community. It's way too hard to stay there and keep loving those people. Now look, there is a time to leave a church. There is a time there are good reasons. For example, if a church stops preaching and teaching the Bible, then you should leave. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about a fickleness when it comes to trivial things. Fight the fickleness. Fight the slothfulness by staying put. If you're not planted somewhere, you'll never grow. You'll never grow. So fight that slothfulness by committing to a local church and remaining committed. Second, do the hard work of developing embodied friendships. Face-to-face, life-on-life friendships. They're going to feel a lot different than that shallow connectivity you have online. They're going to feel a lot different. When you have deep friendships, embodied friendships... You can't hide behind edits and filters. There's a realness to them. There's also a slowness to the way they develop. There's a messiness to them. They don't happen in controllable environments, manageable amounts, one block of text at a time. That's not how these things develop. There's a messiness and a slowness to them. 
but they're much slower to die. They're much slower to die. Invest in those real embodied relationships. This is a great first step here. Get involved in one of our connection groups. You know what you'll find in our connection groups? Flesh and blood people who sit down together, study God's word together, pray together. No prayer emojis. We actually pray. We help each other go through difficult times in life, sweat alongside each other. We actually help people move into houses, even in the middle of the Florida heat. Join a connection group. Develop some embodied friendships. Finally, participate in a local mission. Do something here in this community. Find a need and meet it. Get to know your neighbors. Come to the lunch today and take one of those bikes that our Cycles for Christ ministry has rebuilt. We've got bicycles ready for you to take and give to a needy child in your neighborhood. Do that. Invest in this community. Stop trying to be somewhere else. There is no better place. This is where God has sovereignly stationed you. We cannot, we cannot act locally by thinking globally. You with me on that? We cannot act locally by thinking globally. But if we all act locally, if we all act locally, in time, the world will be a different place. So find a need in your own backyard and meet it in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are not lazy at love. Not a bit. You were not slothful. You gave up everything to demonstrate your love for us. You gave your life in our place for our sins. You conquered death and sin for us. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. As we enter into this time in our service where we celebrate that good news of the gospel, God, we confess our sins to you now. We confess that there have been times where we have been slothful, we have been lazy at love, the love to which you've called us. We can see how our devices have incited much of that. Help us to set the boundaries we need to set, to make the changes we need to make, so that we can return to that kingdom calling you've given us. Love God with our whole selves and love those around us. Not because we're trying to earn your love, God, or earn your favor. No, we already have it. Jesus has demonstrated that. He's done everything for us simply because we want to be more like Him. As your children, God, we want to become more and more loving. So we ask for your help and the power of your Holy Spirit in that. In Jesus' name.